I do want to give my own personal shout out to that children's ministry team. Our River West Kids team is amazing. And uh, yeah, and I got to be... um, I got to witness that on Friday night. We had a harvest party here, and it was amazing to see all the families come into the church, and, and our team is just phenomenal. I actually got to participate in the harvest party this year because they added a new kind of station at the harvest. You know, like harvest parties, there's all the stations, the, the cake walk, the ring toss. Well, this year, they added a station called Pie a Pastor. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that happened. And I was the last pastor in the rotation. I thought, this is great. End of the night, kids are tired. They've spent all their tickets, you know. Oh, no, 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 no. They had stored up all of their wrath for the uh, last pastor. There was a line of kids into the sanctuary waiting to pie me. Pastor Eric even got in on it. And when Eric pied me, he said, I I pie you in the name of the Father and the Son. Like a true pastor, so... Okay, are you ready? Are you excited? Get that Bible out. And I'm filled with joy to have you open for the first time to the book of Romans. It's so good. The moment is here. I have been praying about this day for years. I've been waiting for this moment uh, with great anticipation. And if you've been around the church, you might have even noticed, hey, have you noticed this over the last three or four years? I've actually been dropping hints about this series. Have you noticed that? I'll be preaching in Luke, and then I'll cross-reference something in Romans. And when I get to Romans, I'll, I'll say something like, you know, it might be interesting to preach a series in the book of Romans, right? Or, 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 I'll, or I'll open Romans and say, I think it might be time to preach a series in the book of Romans. I've just been saying that over and over, and now the day has arrived, and can I be totally vulnerable with you? I'm actually a little bit nervous today. I'm feeling the weight of this series. Embarking on a series in Romans is kind of a big thing, all right? I kind of feel like somebody who sits for the very first time at the wheel of a Ferrari, all right? It's like when you're sitting at the wheel of a Ferrari and I think, I really want to drive this car, but it might be a little too much car for me, (laughs) okay? That's how I feel. Because if you know anything about Romans, Romans is daunting. It's a huge, massive, theologically rich book. Romans is long. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. Over 7,000 words, 23 pages in my Bible. Romans is complex. The theology is deep. Paul's logic is meticulous. Do you know that Paul's logic in Romans is so amazing that for the first 100 years of Harvard Law School, first-year law students would study Romans, not for religious purposes. They would study Romans as a model of how to use logic and rhetoric and argumentation. Romans is amazing. But Romans is also controversial. If you know anything about Romans, you know we're going to come to passages and verses that are controversial and intense, and you'll, and you'll know those verses when we get there. And yet, it would be odd for a church to go for too long without ever preaching to the book of Romans. It would be odd. And so we have to do it. And I want to do it. 
And you may not realize this, but I'm actually probably on the second half of my life as a pastor, all right? So it's like now is the time to preach through the book of Romans, and I really want to do it. The book of Romans is pretty much universally regarded as the most influential document in Christian history. John Stott said, it is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the entire New Testament. John Knox said, it is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary to the Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, that's pretty lofty, okay, (laughs) but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered or preached too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. And you know what? That's my experience with the book of Romans. I actually came to Christ because of the book of Romans. You may not know this. I came to Christ at a Young Life camp called Malibu Club. And there's a lot of amazing things about Young Life and about Malibu Club. Malibu is one of the most beautiful places on the earth. And If you've been around Young Life, the Young Life leaders are some of the most amazing people. But the reason that I came to Christ was not because of the beauty of Malibu Club. It was not because of the amazing leaders. I came to Christ because the camp speaker over the course of a week centered every one of his messages around a verse in the book of Romans. And by the end of the week, my soul was split down the middle and God rescued me and grafted me into the family of Christ. I remember verses being preached at that camp, verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, And the speaker would talk about the implications of sin and the depth of sin, but the depth of God's grace in Christ. Or how about Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll never forget sitting in that club room as an 18-year-old high school kid hearing that gospel preached and realizing God is in the process of changing my life. We're on the last night, this verse being read, Romans 10:9. if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you know what, folks, I've been praying all morning since I woke up this morning. I have been praying that that would happen this morning, right now, in this space. Some of you, that as as Romans is opened, as Romans is preached, as Romans is opened before us and the Holy Spirit shows us the power of Christ in this book, that we will experience the mighty work of God in this place and hearts will be transformed. Can I ask you to pray that with me this morning and for Sundays to come, please? All 66 books of the Bible matter, but there's something about the book of Romans that makes it 
so that God has used it miraculously in people's lives over the centuries. Countless testimonies of faith in Christ involving the book of Romans. I'll just tell you four really quickly. Augustine, you've ever heard of Augustine? The great church father. Augustine uh, had a, his mother, Monica, prayed for him every day, but he rebelled against the faith of his mother. And during his childhood, his teenage years, he lived a very uh, sexual life. He was, he was out of control. He was, he was rebelling, and his mother prayed for him faithfully. And one day, he, he had this experience where he was in his 30s, and he was experiencing sort of the turbulence in his soul. And he writes in his confessions how... The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden. He walked outside and he went into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and I let my tears flow freely. And suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a little boy or a little girl. And the voice was saying over and over and repeating over and over, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted solely as a divine command to open the book and read where the first chapter I might find. Have you ever done that? Just grabbed your Bible and like, I'm just going to read the first thing I open to. I always open to the Song of Solomon or something like super unhelpful, right? <laughs> okay. But Augustine opened, guess where? The book of Romans. And the moment he read, and it's sort of an odd verse, this is what he read. Not in riots, not in drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Romans 13. And he said immediately, my heart was split open. I neither wished nor needed to read further at once with the last words of the sentence. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Martin Luther came to Christ because of the book of Romans. Martin Luther became a Christian over a decade after he had already been in vocational ministry. He was serving as a priest but he was serving with a deep angst. He couldn't get over the fact that the Bible said that, the, that in order to be right with God, you have to be perfectly righteous. He wrote in one of his journals, I hated the idea of the righteousness of God. It haunted me. And then he read Romans 1, 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And Martin Luther said, it was as if God, the, 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 the gates of heaven were opened and suddenly I understood grace. And that launched the Protestant Reformation. Amazing. Amazing. 
It was the evening of May 24th, 1738. A man went very unwillingly to a meeting in an upper room on Aldersgate Street in London where a group of friends had gathered for Bible study and prayer. And the person who was leading the meeting began to read from the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. He wasn't even reading Romans. He was reading the preface of a commentary on Romans. And this reluctant man in that upper room who didn't even want to be there would later write in his journal about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that night marked the conversion of a young, struggling preacher in his 30s. He was a preacher, and you know what his name was? John Wesley. Who would go on to spark one of the greatest revivals in the history of the Christian church, and it happened because of the book of Romans. Amazing. And I have a fourth story, but I'm going to tell that story at the end, okay? Because first I want to ask you a question. How did this happen? How did it come about that the most important letter in the New Testament, arguably, the most influential document in the history of church, a letter that Christians have turned to over and over and over for decades and decades, how did it come about that that letter was written by a man who literally hated Christianity? He had devoted his life to exterminating Christians. A man who was standing when the first Christian was martyred, Stephen, they were stoning Stephen, and this man, the author of the book we're about to study, was standing there and watching with approval. How is it that that man, only 20 years later, came to write the book of Romans? And verse 1 has the answer. So we look at it now with me? Finally. You're like, finally, Pastor, you're reading the Romans. <laughs> I had to build it up, all right? Give me some grace here. Romans is about grace, okay? Here it is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Will you just hover over that? You see the three phrases there? After Paul, three phrases Servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This morning, it's going to take the entire sermon just to preach this one verse. We're only going to preach one verse. So if you're wondering, how long is the series in Romans going to be? Um, my answer is, I don't exactly know, okay? <laughs> my hope is to get to verse 17 by the end of November, but we'll see. God willing. I can summarize Romans 1, verse 1, with three words. A beautiful disruption. A beautiful disruption. That is the reason that a man who had devoted his life to exterminating Christianity is now known as the author of the most influential Christian letter ever written. It's because God disrupted his life. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful disruption. 
Sometimes the most beautiful thing that can happen in your life is when God disrupts you. But we don't always think about disruptions like that, right? Normally when we think of disruptions, we use that word negatively. It's like disruptions are negative, right? A disruption of sleep. Has that ever happened to you, parents, toddlers? A disruption of sleep. A disruption of concentration. A disruption in the internet service. In my house, when the internet is disrupted, it's like the apocalypse is upon us, all right? It would be better for us to have basic resources cut off, like water or oxygen, <laughs> than for the internet to be disrupted, okay? So it all depends on what is being disrupted. Sometimes a disruption is the single most important thing that could ever happen to you. It was for Paul. Will you just look with me at the story? This is where I'll have to have you turn in your Bible to Acts 9. We do need to take a minute and understand what happened to Paul to disrupt him. And Romans 9 tells the story. And here's what Romans 9 tells us. Now, the first thing you notice is that in Rome, in, in, excuse me, Acts 9 is where I'm going. Acts 9. And in Acts 9, it starts out with the word Saul. Don't get, don't get um, uh, confused. Saul is just the Hebrew version of Paul. Same name. Here's Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way... Now, the way was the, the, the way that the early church describes themselves. They describe themselves as the way, the way of Jesus. So here's Saul, Paul, asking for letters so he could go to synagogues in Damascus and find anyone who claims to be a part of the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, and I want you to notice the little plan words there. Isn't this interesting? Paul's got a way. He's on his way. And then there's another way, the way, the way of Christ, the way of people following Jesus. And those are often not the same thing. So Paul's on his way. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus disrupted his life, disrupt. Paul was on his way. Paul was, had his agenda. Paul was living his life. Paul was accomplishing his mission. And what happened? A beautiful disruption. Sometimes the most beautiful thing that can happen in your life is when God disrupts you. When God disrupts you. And of course, you've noticed that's what we've titled our series in Romans, The Beautiful Disruption. Because we believe this is what God's going to do. We are praying this is what God is going to do. Disrupt our church in beautiful ways. Don't think negative. Think, God, we need you to show up and, 
and shake us and move us and rattle us and change our hearts and change our agendas and change the direction we're going. If it's your will, we want you to disrupt us. Romans, later in Romans, Paul will say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news because the good news is disruptive and the good news is beautiful. Can I make you a promise? As we study the book of Romans, I promise you, there's going to come a moment when God is going to disrupt you. It's going to happen. He's going to rattle you. He's going to show you something in your life that he wants you to change. He's going to reveal to you something about the gospel that you didn't know, but you need to know. It will happen. And let me tell you something, friends. When that happens, it will be so beautiful. So beautiful. When God disrupted Paul's life, he restored three things, okay? Three things that I want to talk about this morning. He restored Paul's true identity. He restored Paul's understanding of reality. And he restored Paul's purpose for living. All in that one moment of disruption. His true identity, his understanding of reality, and his purpose for living. Now, I don't have to convince you that Romans 1, verse 1 is all about identity. Just look at it. The whole verse is an identity verse. These three phrases, servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart, these are identity statements. But I, I want you to notice something. This is really, really interesting. The main question that Paul is addressing in this verse, so think about this, the main question that he's addressing is not, who is Paul? The main question that he's addressing is, whose is Paul? Do you see the difference? I want you to think about this because this is the key to finding your identity. We, we, when we start with identity, we often start with the wrong question. We start with the question, who am I? But the question that Paul asks first is, whose am I? And that question is absolutely critical. You got to get the order right. Over the last couple of decades, I've noticed that in the Christian world, we talk a lot about identity, and it's really good. It's extremely healthy to talk about identity. But I have noticed a strange absence of that question that Paul asks. So books, books, books on identity, blogs on identity, podcasts on identity, and often it starts with, who am I? And Paul says, that's like ready, fire, aim, okay? You got the order wrong. The first question you ask before who am I is whose am I? Who do I belong to? Who owns me? Paul had never been to Rome. He'd never been there. He says in verse 13, and we're going to get there in, in a couple of weeks, he says, I, God willing, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. So he had never been to Rome. This is the only letter that Paul wrote to a church that he did not plant. 
So most of the Christians in Rome, he had never met him. He'd never met them. He knew a couple of them that had traveled, but he was basically writing a letter to a group of strangers that he had never met. And so think about this. What is the very first thing that Paul wants them to know? He wants them to know, I belong to somebody. The most important thing, Romans, before I tell you all the amazing things that I'm going to write over the course of 16 chapters, the most important thing that you need to know is that I am a bondservant of Christ. I want to be like Paul so much. Paul's whole being revolved around Christ. He could never think of himself or think about any part of himself apart from thinking about Jesus. He could never talk about himself without talking about Jesus. His identity was so closely tied to the gospel that he doesn't even know how to introduce himself without immediately not talking about himself. (laughs) I love that. I want that to be true of me. It's interesting in the church, uh, pastors, we, we sort of think a lot about when we're preaching, how much should we talk about ourselves, okay? And you not even know this dialogue's happening all the time. Preachers, we're, we're comparing notes. And it's sort of a balance, you know. We, we know the church needs to know a little bit about our lives. And so we'll tell stories and we'll let you know about children and marriage and struggles, but that can get way out of balance, right? Have you ever been listening to a sermon where you're 30 minutes in and the pastor has been talking about himself the entire time and you're thinking a little bit of God would be great, like any moment here, okay? Just talk about Jesus once. Just say his name once, please, I'm begging you, right? And then there's the other extreme of never talking about yourself. But what's amazing about Paul, look at your Bible. Paul can't get four words into his letter to the Romans without talking about the real hero of the story. And this moves my heart. And I want this for you. I don't want you to be able to get four words into any conversation with someone in your life without talking about the hero of your story, whose name is Jesus. And so God, please disrupt us, please. When Paul used this word servant, he had two things in mind, all right, just really quickly. It's actually, it could be, it's the, in the Greek, it's the word doulos. It could be bondservant or slave. But he had, he had two things in mind, ownership and authority. That's what he's thinking, ownership and authority. Where am I getting this? Well, ownership, I'm, first, here's 1 Corinthians 7.23. I could go to a lot of places. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves or bondservants of men. In other words, To be a slave of someone is to be bought by them. And we were bought with a price. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so we belong to Christ. You are are doubly owned by Jesus. He created you, and then he saved you by his blood. And so you now belong to him. 
And that's a beautiful kind of belonging. But also authority. Here's Galatians 1.10. I love this verse. For now, am I now seeking, this is Paul, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. So authority, Paul's saying, if, if, I was, if I was not a slave of Christ, I would constantly be trying to please people. But because I am a slave of Christ, I don't care about pleasing people. And that is freedom. So we think of being owned by Jesus as bondage when in actuality, being owned by Jesus means being freed from the bondage of constantly having to try to please other people. How beautiful is that? To have an audience of one. River West, you have an audience of one. There's one person that you need to please with your life. And the only reason you need to please him is because he bought you and he loves you and he owns you. And that is beautiful. Beautiful. It's true identity. Number two, when God disrupted Paul's life, he restored Paul's understanding of reality his understanding of reality. Now, this is where I want you to focus your attention on this interesting word in verse one. It's the word apostle. You just look at that in your Bible. Called to be, I'm a servant of Christ, but I was also called to be an apostle. What, I, what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna show you there's a lot more going on in that word than we realize. Every word in verse one applies to you as a Christian, except for that one word. Apostle. There are no longer apostles. Okay? But every other word there, slave of Christ, set apart for the gospel, called, applies to Christians. But not that one word. In order to carry the title of apostle, you had to be directly and personally called and commissioned by Jesus. You had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. You had to see the risen Lord Jesus with your own physical eyes so that you could serve as an authentic, authoritative witness to the resurrection. That was part and parcel of being an apostle. And you had to be sent out by Jesus personally as an authorized spokesman of his gospel. But here's the problem. Paul couldn't claim any of those things. From a, from a purely natural, a historical, naturalistic perspective, Paul couldn't claim any of that. He tells us the story in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to put this on the screen. He, here's how he describes how Jesus called him to be an apostle. He's talking about how Jesus is appearing to people in, in his resurrected state. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Look at this. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. That phrase, we could put that back up, that phrase, untimely born in verse eight, it's really interesting. Paul says, I feel like I was born at the wrong time. You know, I, it's like I came into the world late or something. I didn't get to be a part of that circle of 12. The apostles, the 12 who got to sit around the campfire with Jesus 
I wasn't there. It's like I was born at the wrong time. I didn't get to hear Jesus teach in his earthly ministry. I didn't get to watch the the miracles. I wasn't even there. I didn't get to stand with the other apostles and watch the crucifixion. And I didn't get to be inside of the room when he appeared in his resurrected state. I wasn't there when he let Thomas stick his fingers in the, in the holes of my hand and, and the hand in the side of Christ. I, I missed all of that. I wasn't even there. And not only that, even after Jesus was raised and ascended for the next decade and a half, I devoted my life to killing Christians. I feel like someone who was born at the wrong time. And you say, well, then, Paul, how can you claim to be an apostle? And Paul says, because God in his grace went out of his way to appear to me in a special way. Like one who was born at the wrong time. Romans, Romans says, for it was while you were yet a sinner that I died for you. Paul says, I was the worst of sinners, and yet Christ, the risen Lord, came specially to me, and I saw him with my own eyes. And he called me to be an apostle. And in his grace, he invited me into this ministry. And here's the point, folks. It was not just that Paul took the title of apostle. What was happening in that moment was that Jesus was changing Paul's ability to see reality. Think about this. Paul, in that moment, realized Jesus, the risen Lord, is more real now than ever. He is just as real now. He is just as active in our world now as he was in his earthly ministry. How do I know that? Because he appeared to me and called me. And Paul says, I'm going to write you an entire letter about what that risen Lord Jesus is doing in our world. Friends, can I tell you something? Jesus, the risen Lord, is on the move in our world right now. He's on his throne. He is reigning. He is powerful. There is nothing happening that's happening outside of his perfect sovereign control. He has a plan for our church. He has a plan for our city. He has a plan for the people that live in your neighborhood. And he has a plan for your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I think Jesus wants to disrupt us in a beautiful way and call us again to his mission and the book of Romans is going to do it. Paul says, I got to see the risen Lord in action and now Paul says, I'm going to invite you to see Jesus with those very same eyes. And so if you're sensing my excitement about preaching Romans, okay, it's real. I'm excited. I want you to be excited because Jesus, the risen Lord, has an agenda for our church. And I can't wait. I can't wait to be a part of it. Okay, one more. And then we're going to worship. When, when God disrupted Paul, he restored Paul's purpose for living. He restored his purpose. He restored his true identity. He restored his vision of reality. And then he restored his purpose. And that's this last phrase, set apart for the gospel. Paul says, 
God, you set me apart for the gospel. You know what it means to be set apart in the Bible? When you set something apart, it means you, you give it special attention and focus. You set it aside. You protect it. You honor it because you recognize this has a special purpose in my life. That's what it means to be set apart. I have a Bible that I use that is set apart for preaching, okay? It's this Bible. At the risk of being an idolater, I want to tell you that I absolutely love this Bible, okay? I love this Bible so much. This Bible is beautiful. It's really soft. When I open it, it lays open and it actually stays open, which for preachers is a great thing. This Bible is made from 100% goat skin leather. A goat gave its life for me to have this Bible, okay? I love it. I carry around, this is how sick I am. I carry around the original box, okay? with fabric in it. And when I get done preaching, I go back to my office. Now, you can start a counseling fund now. But I go back to my office, I take this Bible, because it's set apart for preaching, and I set it back in the black, and I fold it up, and I close it, and I put it in the box. Okay. And Paul says, that's what God did in my life. And I'm standing in front of you today to say, that is what God wants to do in your life. That's how God sees you. God says, I, I want to set you apart for the gospel. That's my goal. There's a play on words happening in this verse. The word set apart in the Greek, the Greek verb is the, is the word aphorismenos. I know I messed that up. Aphorismenos. It's the same word from which we get the word Pharisee. Okay. I want you to think about this. The word Pharisee meant someone who was set apart. And Paul was a Pharisee. If you go to Philippians 3, he says, I was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. And in that section in Philippians, he's describing how he had committed his life to be on a mission against the work of Jesus. He was like, I, I was set apart for that. The Pharisees considered themselves to be set apart, but in sort of a negative sense. They would never let the, 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 the fringes of their robe touch anything unclean or anyone unclean because they were set apart. They would walk on the other side of the road. They would never touch anyone who was sick. They would never meddle in the affairs of anyone who was unclean because they were set apart. And Paul says, that was me. And then God set me apart for a different mission, a different purpose. God in his grace set me apart for the gospel. Paul saying, now look, don't think that I didn't have a purpose before God got a hold of me. I had a purpose in my life. I was on a mission. And folks, everyone has devoted their life to something. Everyone's devoted their life to some mission, some purpose. The question is, what is the purpose that your life is set apart for? 
And God says, the purpose of Romans is to disrupt you if needed so that you might come to the realization, wait a minute, God has set me apart for the gospel. Have you ever described yourself like that? How would you know? There's several ways you might know. Are you always talking about Christ? Are you always thinking about the lost? Do you always care about the people in your life who haven't heard about Jesus? Do you live with an insatiable desire to lift up Christ everywhere you go? This was Paul. And I just want you to consider that phrase, set apart for the gospel. I want you to begin to describe yourself like that by God's grace. Amen? Amen? Are you still with me? Do you still like, are you still happy? Okay. I'm going to tell you the fourth story. Three stories. Here's the fourth story, okay? Some of you know where this is going. The fourth story is being written right now. The fourth story is our story. The fourth story is your story. I think God wants to write a new story for your life through Romans. And I'm so glad you're going to be a part of it. So I want to close with a, with a quote that I love from a New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce. Here's how he finished his preface to the book of Romans. Do we have this quote? He said, there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the epistle to the Romans. What happened to Augustine, what happened to Luther, what happened to Wesley launched great spiritual movements which have left their mark in world history. But similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary people as the words of this letter came home to them with power. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading further. You have been warned. <laughs> oh, I love that. River West, we have been warned. We have been warned. And it's a really beautiful thing. Really beautiful thing. So come back next Sunday and we'll preach verse two. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's bow our heads. Lord, we are so grateful. We are so humbled. And we are so excited to open the book of Romans together. Please, Lord God, would you disrupt our city? Would you disrupt our church? Would you disrupt our lives with the power of grace? with the truth of the gospel. We long for it. We welcome it. We invite it. And we love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for all of the truth that is contained in this letter. Truth that we need. Truth that our city needs. And so have your way, Lord God, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Everyone said, amen.